Hey, everybody, a quick intro here for you to this one. Recently over on Fernando's YouTube channel, which is primarily Portuguese based, but he uh, also does uh, English language interviews as well. Recently, uh, he's been uh, highlighting, reflecting on, and doing a series on the 50-year anniversary of the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement that was uh, more or less famously when uh, Richard Nixon decided to close off the export of gold uh, from the United States, the redemption of gold from the United States called the Gold Window, uh, August 15th, 1971. Uh, very much respect Dr. White's opinion. Uh, obviously, he's been on our show uh, as well when Fernando was here guest hosting. And, um, you know, just over the years, his whole career has been, I think, a very strong, strong uh, researcher and voice on free banking, on uh, the gold standard, and on monetary policy. So this is a little bit less uh, Bitcoin. Uh, we do talk a little bit of stable coins and the regulation that's coming, lots and lots of regulation that is coming. Um, I know if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're thinking like I am, dear listener, you're, you're wondering why we aren't asking more Bitcoin questions. Uh, but I think those are for other times. And you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think Bitcoin's going to play a central role in this uh, new monetary era, which is certainly coming on really, really fast uh, in the digital age here. So, um, you know, there's plenty of time to talk about that. We've talked about that a lot. This is a little bit more on the gold standard, a little bit more on the history and a little bit more on reflecting uh, on everything that happened a little bit before and after uh, 1971. So I hope you enjoy it. Hope it's interesting for you. A little bit of a resyndication here. Uh, this may or may not be released by the time Fernando drops the uh, video, the audio and video on his YouTube channel. If he does, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. If not, I'll link it soon after. Um, so without any further ado, here's Dr. Larry White. Dr. Larry White, thank you very much for accepting our invitation to talk about the 50-year anniversary of the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement, and it's a real honor to have you on. Well, it's good to be here to celebrate this sad day. I guess celebrate's the wrong word. <laughs> Commemorate. <laughs> and, and Matthew, thank you very much for, for setting this up and talking to Dr. White so we can uh, have him on, and uh, since it's it's a very important uh, date, and I know you have a lot of questions, Matthew. So I want to uh, have you start our conversation and make the first questions to Dr. White as we go along. Sure, sure, buddy. Yep, good to be on your uh, channel again, uh, and and coming back together with Dr. White again. We had him uh, a couple years ago on the podcast on my right. podcast, which was very nice. Um, so yeah, uh, Larry, thanks thanks again for joining. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to start maybe uh, with a little bit of uh, personal uh, reflecting. So it's 50 years. Fernando and I are uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, just just uh, reaching the horizon of 40 here. So we we were not alive uh, with the uh, <laughs> with that uh, temporary suspension of the gold window. But obviously, we, it's interesting to us. We read a lot about it. Um, I'm just curious, just personally, like I remember hearing Lou Rockwell on a podcast one time. I don't know if this is true or how much he was embellishing, but he said he heard it on the radio driving that uh, it was actually happening that we were, you know, closing the gold window. And 
and um, I guess it was suspending it at the at the time. But uh, he said, I, I just remember randomly at one podcast, he said he actually had to pull his car over because he was uh, he was so surprised he couldn't believe it. Uh, I, I don't know how old you were at the time, uh, if you were in academia at that point, but uh, I was I was only sixteen. <laughs> yeah, so I, so you weren't you weren't uh, fully into your uh, you know monetary days, but um, obviously you you know you studied this stuff your whole life, um, even when you started to study it, when you got into university, um, can you just give us a flavor of like what the atmosphere, were people even talking about it, that it happened? Well, at the same uh, speech in which Nixon announced he was closing the gold window, he also announced wage and price controls. And there was more discussion about that at the time. And reading about why he did that, apparently his advisors told him closing the gold window will be seen as negative and it'll, It'll look bad. So why don't you announce some positive initiative at the same time? Let's announce that we're going to end inflation by imposing wage and price controls and show that we really have control of the economy. And of course, there was a lot of discussion about that because it was turned out to be enormously damaging and not actually effective uh, at controlling inflation because it's like breaking the thermometer to try to control the temperature. but no, I, I don't remember uh, at the time having any particular reaction to the closing of the gold window um, other than it was Nixon, so nobody really trusted <laughs> that it was being done for good reasons. And in retrospect, we can see that it was kind of a political move. Um, really, Nixon had the choice between tightening monetary policy to make the $35 an ounce exchange rate of the dollar into gold sustainable or closing the gold window uh, and continuing an expansionary monetary policy, which he wanted to do because he was running for re-election in the following year. So he shut the gold window and monetary policy continued, in fact, became more expansionary. And, and in terms of the, the the whole date is referred as the Nixon shock. Was it really a shock? I mean, from at least from the perspective of economists and Austrian economists, uh, I suppose the whole Bretton Woods agreement was filled with perhaps some deficiencies or it was destined to failure. So was it a shock or was just uh, the predictable end road? I think it was the predictable end to a system that had internal contradictions. Mm-hmm. And there were economists who understood this at the time, uh, principally Jacques Rueff, the French economist, and Henry Hazlitt understood pretty well these internal contradictions to the system. And we now teach it uh, to undergraduates uh, using the framework known as the impossible trinity. So a central bank that's trying to fix an exchange rate uh, and also allow free capital flows and money flows uh, cannot control the quantity of money. They have to let money flow in uh, and increase the money supply or flow out to the rest of the world if they're going to maintain the fixed exchange rate, right? They have to become passive with respect to monetary policy. But under Bretton Woods, uh, each country was trying to do all three things. Uh, 
maintain a fixed exchange rate, other countries with the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar with gold, and uh, run their own monetary policy, but also allow free trade and capital flows. And under the Bretton Woods system, when it was first uh, created at the, at the end of World War II, most countries had exchange controls. And so it was that third component that was missing. And if you block people from trading their francs for dollars or their marks for dollars, their pounds for dollars, then you can sustain a fixed exchange rate and run your own monetary policy. But of course, you're enormously interrupting international trade when you ration foreign exchange. As the exchange controls began to be lifted in the years after the war, then the internal contradictions became clear. And there were a series of exchange rate crises under Bretton Woods, where countries that had issued more money than was consistent with maintaining the exchange rate to the US dollar, that is, they inflated more than the US dollar, and so the purchasing power of their currency was falling. So that was inconsistent with a fixed exchange rate. Everybody would want to trade for dollars when dollars bought more than domestic currency. They began to run out of dollar reserves. And so they either had to change the exchange rate or they had to tighten monetary policy. The Bretton Woods Agreement created the International Monetary Fund to kind of manage this process of either lending uh, for countries that couldn't maintain their fixed exchange rate to the dollar. It either lent them dollars or it gave them permission to devalue. So there were devaluations by Great Britain and France and other countries. Meanwhile, Germany was inflating less than the US, so Germany actually adjusted its exchange rate in the other direction. It strengthened against the dollar. The dollars pegged to gold seemed pretty durable, but the US was inflating more than was consistent. So the purchasing power of the dollar uh, was falling relative to the purchasing power of gold. And so foreign central banks that accumulated dollars wanted to trade them for gold. And they started trading them for gold, especially France. The US started running out of gold. And everybody knew under a classical gold standard that if you started losing gold, you had to stop expansionary monetary policy. But the Fed kept it up and even before Nixon closed the gold window, the Fed was acting inconsistently with its obligation to maintain the peg at $35 an ounce. So at some point in the 1960s, inflation in the US uh, started to go up to a point where it was inconsistent with the fixed exchange rate. The US was losing gold to foreign central banks. And finally, uh, President Johnson, before Nixon, put restrictions on the convertibility of dollars into gold, uh, stopped trying to control the market price of gold in London. The dollar price of gold in London rose to above $40 an ounce. And so there's a clear arbitrage profit for any central bank that can get gold for $35 and then sell it for 40. And so gold was draining out of the US treasury and finally, rather than uh, restrict US monetary policy, Nixon closed the gold window. And as I said, the economists had seen that coming. And apart from uh, people who were 
who appreciated the operation of the classical gold standard and wanted to return to something like it, people like Rueff and Hazlitt. Other economists celebrated it. Milton Friedman thought this was great because now the Fed can control the quantity of money in a more rational way, uh, which of course didn't happen. He didn't get moderate the moderate money growth that he was advocating. Instead, money growth became immoderate and we got double-digit inflation within a decade. They even predicted that the gold price would collapse after the closing of the gold window, right? Right. So Friedman said uh, there really isn't much demand in the market for gold. It's just central bank demand that's keeping up the price. So if the Fed stops pegging the dollar to gold, and this was an important part of his uh, assumption, sells its gold on the free market and other central banks sell their gold. They didn't have as much other than France. If they sell their gold on the market, then the market price of gold will collapse. But of course, two things happened that upset his prediction. One, central banks didn't sell their gold. And two, uh, central banks inflated to the point where the public started wanting gold as an inflation hedge. And so the real price of gold has risen quite a bit since the end of Bretton Woods, contrary to predictions. But the, the conditions for the predictions weren't uh, met. Right. So before talking about the, the last 50 years, let me just go back to the agreement itself. And I want to have your opinion on, on the matter was, is of all the options that were on the table during the Bretton Woods conference, was there perhaps a superior alternative that wasn't adopted or, or, or the agreement itself, the one we got is really the be was the best option? Well, of the options that had any chance of getting a majority, uh, Bretton Woods was probably better than the main leading alternative, which was John Maynard Keynes's plan to have a kind of Bretton Woods, but without any gold anchor at all. And he wanted to create an artificial international currency, an, an international fiat currency called Bancor. Uh, and that was supposed to limit the expansion of the international monetary system, but it wasn't at all clear what would limit the expansion of the quantity of Bancor by the IMF. And so that was probably even more inflationary than Bretton Woods uh, turned out to be. So for a couple of decades, well, until through the 1950s, let's say, uh, inflation was pretty low under the Bretton Woods system. And the Fed seemed to respect its obligation not to print more dollars than was consistent with maintaining $35 per ounce of gold. But with the influence of Keynesian demand management policies, The U.S. began using monetary policy to try to bring down the unemployment rate, uh, trying to exploit the so-called Phillips curve. And that made it impossible to maintain the peg at $35 an ounce. So there were a few economists uh, who I've mentioned, uh, besides Rueff and Hazlitt, of course, Ludwig von Mises, uh, F.A. Hayek, who would have liked to see a return to a classical gold standard where each country held its own gold reserves. And so there was a decentralized mechanism, the price-specie flow mechanism, 
that maintained international equilibrium in the balance of payments and in, in money flows. So each country under the price specie flow mechanism gets the quantity of monetary gold that it is demanding as a share of the entire world stock of gold. So that's a self-regulating system, and that system worked well before the First World War destroyed it. In the interwar period, of course, there was chaos. Uh, so Bretton Woods was a little better than the interwar system where there were floating exchange rates, some countries on gold, some countries getting on, getting off. Uh, very hard to predict what your currency was going to be worth in a year or two. So it was an improvement over that, but it was ultimately not a time consistent or incentive compatible, maybe is the word. It's not was not an incentive compatible system when it came to Federal Reserve policy. The U.S. could expand its money supply and then extra dollars would flow overseas and the U.S. could buy goods and services from the rest of the world and just give them dollars, which didn't cost the U.S. anything to produce, unless the rest of the world came to redeem those dollars for gold. But when the Fed stopped respecting that constraint on their behavior, they were, in a sense, taking advantage of the system. It allowed, it gave them what was called an exorbitant privilege to export dollars to the rest of the world in exchange for goods and services. Um, and they couldn't resist the temptation to keep doing that. And one of the reasons, as I understand, why it probably was Bretton Woods, the most downhill option for the dollar, was because all the gold after World War II made its way to the U.S. Oh, exactly uh, right. So instead of a system... 20% yeah. maybe pre-World War One, and then it was like 70 plus percent after Hitler uh, forced all the gold into America's shores and the Caribbean and whatnot. Right, so a lot of gold flowed into the U.S. during the Great Depression. Uh, well, sorry, during First World War, a lot of gold flowed into the U.S. Um, and then in the Second World War as well. So... Bretton Woods kind of reinforced that, and, and it was a system in which all the gold was concentrated in the United States, all the monetary gold that was supporting the dollar, and then the dollar was the reserve for other currencies. So as we say nowadays, it was a system with a single point of failure, uh, and that was U.S. monetary policy, which did fail to play by the rules. So... We only have an hour, probably don't need to go like decade by decade when we got into this uh, fiat standard, post Bretton Woods uh, standard, Federal Reserve sort of standard. But um, maybe I can ask the question a different way. One of, I, I always enjoy, I mean, obviously we can link to all your, your books uh, on, on free banking history and whatnot, but um, there's a the very good uh, lecture series that you did with uh, Dr. Selgin and another hist history professor at Hillsdale College. It was like, 10 years ago, I think it was like October, 2012. It was on YouTube at least. Um, and you've done this before. I'm sure, you know, obviously you're very familiar with it, but like, um, you know, you have, so, so just as far as like alternatives, we know where we are 50 years, we can talk about that in a second, but as far as um, maybe, maybe a good way to paint where we are today and how, how things have developed over the last 50 years, 
you've addressed this again and again and again. Uh, th- this is a very interesting uh, YouTube video. I'd recommend uh, listeners to or viewers to watch on YouTube as well. You know, Dr. Selgin gives a history of the gold standard, the classical gold standard. Uh, you pose all of the, uh, you sort of steel man all of the arguments and and take them down on why. Uh, the gold standard, in fact, is not antiquated or would not be antiquated. But as we know, it's, I mean, just seems politically untenable. That's really the main reason why it, it hasn't come back. It doesn't have a lot of support today. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, let's just start with the support then, maybe. Uh, you know, boom after bust, bust after boom. I mean, uh, it seems like a good option uh, that at least could you know, come back on the table. But other than what Ron Paul has done during his time in Congress, I mean, as far as the United States is concerned, like, I don't see any, I don't see that changing at all. Forget even what, what cryptocurrencies might do or some stable coin innovations. But like, you know, as far as gold, uh, as far here we are 50 years out and, and what you've seen over the over these 50 years and your whole career, like, do you think that it's any worse, any better? Is there any change in the climate uh, as far as, the gold standard ever coming back or is it just, it's never, it's never coming back. Well, it's probably not coming back in my lifetime. (laughs) And so I don't know about the, in the super long run, but I I was once uh, commissioned to write uh, something on how much support the gold standard had in Congress back in like 1981, some, some year like that. And there were one, uh, Ron Paul was about it. Maybe one other congressperson who was had ever said anything favorable about the gold standard. And Ron Paul's son, Rand Paul, has said some favorable things and some others have said favorable things. So maybe there's a handful now who have thought about it and who recognize that the gold standard had some virtues. But there's an awful lot of opposition uh, that is in the wings, if the gold standard ever got on the table, uh, would come out and be more vocal. So I think there's, it's still a very small minority position. Um, there are lots of economists, I think there's been an improvement in, among economists uh, recognizing that it had virtues. Economists have uh, in the last 50 years, come to appreciate uh, the virtues of having commitments. Uh, the famous article by Kidlin and Prescott on rules rather than discretion, that by committing not to inflate, you actually get better results. Uh, even though in the short run, it's tempting to inflate, to reduce unemployment, once the public knows that that's the kind of game you're engaged in, you're not fooling anybody, and so you're not getting any uh, improvement in unemployment by uh, cranking up the printing press uh, when people see it happening and respond to it in real time. And so uh, Kidland uh, has co-authored a piece sort of appreciating the gold standard as a kind of commitment. And I think other economists understand that too. Uh, but not very many. There was a notorious poll taken by a group at the 
Uh, it's headquartered at the business school at the University of Chicago, where they survey about 40 economists on a different topic every month. And one month they asked them uh, whether returning to the gold standard would be an improvement. And they were unanimous in rejecting it. But if you read the comments they made, there were two economists who said, well, it does have this virtue of tying the central bank's hands. Um, and so maybe it's close to a wash, whether that's a good thing. But the majority opinion seemed to be, we can construct a better rule than the gold standard if we want to uh, constrain the central bank. So I think that's probably the dominant opinion among economists. Uh, and some who appreciate the gold standard say, well, it's not worth talking about it as an option because it's not going to happen. So let's yeah. talk about what's the best we can do with the current regime. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a nice piece uh, shouting out you and Dr. Selgin in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, um, opinion piece. And yeah, I, it's actually in the print edition today, but it came online. Print, print came, today, came online yeah. last night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the authors are two of my former students. <laughs> okay. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, we should link to that as well. Um, it's yeah, just it's a very nice piece. Yeah, I mean, again, address the the uh, obvious pushback that exists politically against such a thing. But, um, you know, when you stack up all the arguments and people like uh, Fernando and I have always, also, always been interested in that, and certainly yourself, uh, it, it, it's interesting that, that it's just it doesn't make much, uh, much headway, but that leads me to my next, my next question is, you know, an improvement in banking or improvement in monetary policy. And I'm not referring necessarily to cryptocurrency or even though I have a cryptocurrency podcast An improvement in monetary policy does not necessarily mean that it has to be tied to gold. Um, you know, right. Uh, just, you know, again, in the interest of time, uh, I'm just curious regarding free banking now. We don't have to go get through the whole history, but obviously you, Dr. Selgin, many others, Kevin Dowd, have for, for years, for decades, discussed the interesting historical uh, periods where central banks did not exist and the economies did not collapse. Uh, they were actually pretty stable, um, stable issue of currency privately. And there's just so much to talk about there. But even if we look at something like free banking, um, is free banking, how, how would you kind of follow in my next question my, or my previous question, how would you put free banking today as far as, you know, how politically tenable it is? Um, is that even less so than ever coming back to a gold standard or would it ever be a case where maybe we could get somewhere where you just have more autonomy from, from, from banks in the economy and less, uh, less structure from above by the central bank? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, while you were asking it, I, I've thought of a point I wanted to make, which is you can think of free banking. If you start at Bretton Woods, <laughs> where all the gold in the world is centralized basically in one vault, uh, and I argued that it's more stable to decentralize the gold and have every central bank hold its own gold reserve. Well, free banking goes a step beyond that and says, you don't need to centralize the gold within each country. You can decentralize the gold so that every commercial bank holds its own gold reserves. And that's a free banking system uh, it, when those banks are also issuing currency and allowed to issue deposits under uh, 
minimal restrictions. Uh, and so that makes the system even more stable because you get more decentralized feedback to each issuing institution as to when it's over-issuing. Uh, so it's even more rapid and rapidly self-correcting than the price specie flow mechanism is. But under a fiat standard, you can liberalize the issue of money by banks. And you're if they're on a fiat dollar standard, you still haven't changed monetary policy. You haven't really put any rules or constraints on fiat monetary policy just by liberalizing the issue of claims denominated in fiat dollars. Uh, so it doesn't do what free banking did in the days when we were on a commodity standard, a gold standard or a silver standard. Um, is it politically possible? Well, we're having a fight now over stable coins uh, and whether the authorities need to regulate them. And some have, some critics of stable coins have drawn an analogy between them and wildcat banking, which they think is the typical outcome under free banking. Of course, it isn't. That's a misreading of the historical record, as I've argued and as George Selgin has argued on in blog posts and elsewhere. Um, they never, the critics of stable coins never seem to recognize that free banking was successful in places where the banks were left free. So the US was not a case of the banks actually being free. They called it free banking, the, the legislation at the state level uh, that allowed more entry into banks, banking, where you could get a bank charter without having to lobby the legislature for it. But there were still important restrictions on banks that made them weak and made them failure prone. And in some states, uh, you had a bad experience uh, because of the restrictions that kept competition from driving out bad banks. So the model of free banking that you ought to look at is in Canada or in Scotland or in Sweden, where the banks were not restricted in the amount of notes they could issue. They were not restricted in the amount of capital they could raise, unlike in uh, England. Uh, they weren't restricted in branching, unlike in the United States. And so you had a system that did regulate itself quite well. Uh, so it, it, the, the battle now is at the margin of whether stable coins will be allowed to operate. And they're kind of a parallel system of issuing dollar denominated claims. They don't fall under uh, the system of bank regulation in the US, at least not yet. Uh, some of the regulators would like to bring them in, of course, uh, so they could impose know your customer rules and anti-money laundering rules and whatever other mandates they like to impose on banks. There's some, some interesting parallels between the current phenomenon of stablecoins and the free banking era. Uh, and I think there's something that perhaps was uh, the, one of the reasons that the system was also stable. And what I'm referring to is that the bank liabilities, the issuing banks, their notes, they fluctuated in price in the market. So they could, they were issued one-to-one, -one, but perhaps if there was some 
mistrust in the solvency of a bank, the liability could be the bank a note could be traded below par or above par, perhaps in the case of the opposite uh, situation, more trust in a bank. And the same we see now with stable coins. Some stable coins they are being they sometimes trade below the below parity or sometimes above parity, but we don't have this with the current banking system because the bank liabilities bank deposits they always trade at par there's no way to to price them uh, in the market is is that a correct assessment uh i don't think so i mean in historical money market money market mutual fund would be in historical uh, free banking systems uh people liked having currency that traded at par and so it was the objective of each issuing bank to get yes. their currency to trade at par And so they would make agreements with their banks. I'll accept yours at par if you'll accept mine at par. Okay. And then they met at the clearinghouse to exchange what they'd collected of the other brand of currency. If a banknote was suspect and so was starting to trade below par, people would buy it up and redeem it. Right? It wouldn't continue to circulate below par. That was inconvenient for everybody to have to know what the exchange rate was of this banknote against Uh, specie against the standard. And I think similarly in stable coins, a stable coin that loses its peg is not desirable to have. The whole point is not to take a risk on what its value is going to be in terms of the your income and your expenditures. And that is in terms of the dollar, if you're in a dollar economy or the euro, if you're in a euro economy. So the You see a little bit, a tiny bit of fluctuation in stablecoin prices, but it's between you know ninety nine point nine cents and a dollar point one cent, and that's continually being arbitraged. And if necessary, the issuer will uh, intervene and buy up the excess or inject the deficiency in order to keep it at par. They they operate a kind of pegging system. Uh, but they want to keep it as close to one dollar and zero cents as they can manage. It's a disadvantage, and so to to have it fluctuate around that, the algorithmic stable coins that have lost their peg, uh, some of them have just crashed and burned because everybody abandons them when that happens. And the um, to Fernando's question as well. I mean, there is some parallel. It's certainly they behave very differently. They trade differently. They transact. The utility is different than anything that we've had in the current or prior monetary systems. But uh, you know, if you had a brokerage account in the U.S. or somewhere in Europe, and you went into cash, like you would be in a instrument that is not necessarily like fully redeemable at par, right? I mean, it's not like I could if I go into cash, I have to go into cash, then I have to go back into my From my brokerage account to my bank account to make right. that sort of further. So there's kind of that example, I guess, with you know, it's kind of an M3 like instrument, yet it trades like cash. So it's it's very interesting, um, not like cash, but trades like a, a a regular checking account or Venmo payment or something. But um, I, I do I do I wanted to get your uh, opinion on stable coins there as well because I do I should probably write this stuff down more. But I've been saying this for years, like even before CBDCs. Before you know, before the central banks can attack the technical challenges of a CBDC and having uh, an open 
currency, at least partially open. Certainly, they'll control the back doors and everything. But before you get some CBDC that has the potential to be hacked or manipulated technically, um, stablecoins are very much the low-hanging fruit in the open markets these days. Uh, The US is unique in that they have positive interest rates. I think stablecoins are hard to do. (laughs) Barely. Yes. Yeah, barely. I I think they're very hard to do and not really profitable uh, venture in in other currencies, uh, even the euro or the yen. Um, And so my question would be, um, I think it's it's pretty likely. It's low-hanging fruit for them like to to grab a hold of as many issuers of stablecoins as they can and take it it into some M2-ish, M3-ish type of an instrument that's very regulated. Yeah, the the whole profit from issuing dollar-denominated claims is the float, but in an environment of near zero interest rates, there just isn't much float. And in an environment of negative interest rates on short-term liquid assets, I don't know where the yeah. business case is. How are you going to make it pay? Um, you can imp- try to impose fees on transactions, but who wants to use that as a temporary store of value or as a, as a transaction medium. Yeah. But it does seem that the, that the regulations are, I mean, obviously they're, they're coming, they've been coming for a long time, but um, I can see stable coins, at least in the U S being, being the next, unfortunately, like highly regulated venture, even well before they try to tackle this CBDC, <laughs> the CBDC issue. Yeah, the the CBD, the central bank digital currency proposals have at least two flavors. Uh, one is a token-like currency, which would make it more like a stablecoin. And I don't see a lot of support for that because it circulates outside yeah. the control of the central bank. And, yep. and it, it clears and transacts on its own payment rails. What everybody else is talking, what most of them are talking about is accounts on the central bank's balance sheet. And so there the control is very direct over who gets to hold it, what transactions are permitted, and so on. And since we're talking about CBDC, I I wanted also to go back to Bretton Woods, but since we're talking now about CBDC, let me ask you this. It seems to me there is a great challenge to implement a CBDC because it might change fundamentally the relationship between the banking system and the central bank because a CBDC might drain reserves out of the banking system. They might lose reserves and it might even impact money creation, bank money creation. So isn't... Isn't this one of the main impediments for a CBDC to go forward? How central banks will manage their relationship with the banking system and the expansion of credit? Well, uh, there is concern about that issue and and a lot has been written about it. Uh, Ordinary depositors have deposit insurance and so their claims are just as safe as having a claim right on the Fed's balance sheet. But uninsured depositors who are sizable, and I'm not sure what the exact percentage is, uh, since the deposit insurance limit went to a quarter of a million, the percentage of deposits that are over the insured limit shrank, but it's still something on the order of 20% of dollar deposits. 
those guys, the people who hold those, might want to move them to the Fed's balance sheet if the bank they're holding deposits in becomes uh, suspect. That is, it might fail and their claims won't be repaid if the bank is not being treated as too big to fail. So yeah, so that would be a concern. It would shrink the money multiplier if they ran out of the bank and in onto the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, so people who are trying to design a central bank digital currency that would be like a Fed account are trying to grapple with that issue. And that is a, that is a stumbling block for them, sure. Do you think, going back to our topic of free banking then, do you think that... Um, let's just say cryptocurrency and stable coins, do you think that that is sort of the next best hope then that we might find this sort of slightly lighter touch from authorities? You know, if if gold, if it's not going to be gold, then maybe it's going to be cryptocurrency. Bitcoin. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a question of whether you can build an alternative payment system outside of the regulated system and have it survive attempts to regulate it. <laughs> whether you can keep the authorities from quashing it and trying to bring it inside their corral. And so cryptocurrencies are one alternative and the, the censorship resistance of Bitcoin and other privacy coins uh, is a great virtue. But of course, that is exactly what makes the authorities want to quash it because it's not under their control. There are also possibilities sort of getting back to the gold standard for uh, gold denominated stable coins as an alternative payment medium. But there, if the, if the coin is a claim on bars of gold that are in an identified vault, then of course the vault could be seized if it came to that, uh, or the authorities could threaten the vault and make it uh, succumb to to, to uh, know your customer rules and so on. So it becomes inside the corral of accepted payment systems. So uh, going back now to, to August 15th, 1971, when Bretton Woods was abolished. Uh, since then, we've been operating under this new monetary order I'm not even sure if we can call it a monetary system because perhaps it's a non-system. So my question to you is, what were and are the disadvantages and the problems with the current monetary order? And is there any kind of opinion from among central bankers and top economists and international organizations like the IMF on even the need for monetary reform. And I'm, I'm going to quote something by Paul Volcker, whom we, we've talked about prior to, to, start, to, to start this uh, recording. I remember one of his perhaps uh, last speeches in the Bretton Woods Committee. They, I think they still hold a, an annual conference. And one of these, in this speech, by Volcker in 2014. It was entitled, A New Bretton Woods and Three Questions Marks. And he was talking about exactly this point. I mean, right now, the creation of the G20 is being uh, exalted by presidents and prime ministers. But in fact, there is no 
substantive agreement on the need for monetary reform and even less practical approaches toward that end. So one of the problems with the current monetary order and are these problems actually acknowledged and what would be a reform or we're going to have no reform at all? Well, it's going to be difficult to get the kind of reform that Bretton Woods at its time constituted. Uh, like I said, it was an improvement over the chaos of the interwar period. But the Bretton Woods system put the U.S. in control, made the dollar the key currency. Um, and that was possible because the U.S. was in an enviable financial position at the end of the war compared to all the countries in Europe who had actually been through the war, uh, or that is, had it fought on their soil. Uh, as was mentioned, as Matthew mentioned, uh, a lot, of, a lot of European gold had been shipped to the U.S. So the U.S. was in a position to be the the key currency, and they basically imposed that uh, solution at the Bretton Woods conference, despite Keynes and others trying to argue for something else. Uh, the U.S. had all the cards because all the European countries owed the U.S. money, basically, at the end of the war. That's not the case today, so it's hard to imagine who's going to create a consensus among the G20 countries uh, as to how the new system would be run. But I don't see any great uh, groundswell of opinion that there should be a return to a system of fixed exchange rates. Uh, now, of course, inside the Eurozone, there's a system of fixed exchange rates. So that was an interesting political outcome uh, that we could have another whole another hour to discuss how that came about. Uh, and it was surprising because it was Germany that was ruling the roost at the time and they had very little to gain from creating the euro, but they agreed to it nonetheless. Um, but uh, as to the problems of the current system, um, most obviously uh, we have inflation that's much well, it's, it's not so bad in the last couple of decades as it was in the 70s and 80s, but we have inflation that's chronically higher than it was under the classical gold standard. Uh, I'd have to sit down and compare it to inflation under the Bretton Woods system. It's probably now at under 2%, when it was under 2%, <laughs> not right now in the US where it's closer to 5% year over year. But when it was under 2%, it was in the neighborhood of the Bretton Woods system. Uh, question is, can you get that to last? There, don't, there, there isn't any very strong commitment. The, the Fed has an official commitment to an inflation target of 2%, and other central banks have similar inflation targets. And sometimes they stick to them, and sometimes they don't. Uh, so in the Eurozone, they've been above their 2% inflation target uh, without really doing much to bring it back down. Uh, so inflation is a problem. I think an even bigger problem, although it's hard to make a quantitative comparison, uh, George Selgin and Bill Lestraps and I co-authored a paper where we try to comb through the statistics uh, comparing the classical gold standard period to the post-war uh, statistics. And 
one thing we found was that it's much less predictable what the price level is going to be or what the purchasing power of the currency is going to be at a 10 or 20 or 30 year horizon today than it was under the classical gold standard. Uh, and that's kind of subtle, but what it means is that people are discouraged from making long-term contracts. You don't see 50 and 100 year bonds the way you used to, because who knows what the risk is that you're taking when you commit to pay a certain number of dollars or to receive a certain number of dollars 50 years from now. Who knows what it's going to be worth? And by discouraging long-term lending contracts, it discourages a long-term investment. Because if you want to make a long-term investment now, you have to finance it short-term and then roll it over, roll over the financing. But that carries a risk, a refinancing risk. So as I say, it's hard to put a price tag on that, but I think that's a real problem. It's made the economy more short-term oriented. Uh, it's discouraged long-term investment. Your students mentioned in the op-ed, I did not know this, it's a, I believe it was post-Civil War Railroad had like a thousand year bond. Or something yeah, like I had not heard of that. I knew hundred year railroads commonly issued hundred year bonds. Yeah, that was pretty... It was pretty interesting, <laughs> but um, yeah. Well, I always get too uh, too excited on Bitcoin and, and crypto, but we did want to keep this more on gold uh, for this one. So I had one one more for you, also regarding the statistics. Well, it's um, a problem making a long term contract in Bitcoin too. I should say. <laughs> sure, sure. At the moment, I think no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, uh, just regarding where we are with gold, so obviously central banks for many years now have been buying gold. Um, That's right, and, and and that was kind of contrary to what was expected. Uh, yeah. As Fernando mentioned earlier, uh, Friedman expected central banks to sell off their gold. Yeah. Um, Why don't they? Just, just sorry, Matt. I know that's okay. not your question, but I think yeah. it's it's pertinent. Yeah. Why don't they sell? Why are they even buying gold? What is your uh, opinion on that? So Dr. for, for uh, a long time after 1971, uh, they were selling. And in fact, the central bankers who, who meet at Basel every year agreed not to sell too much per year in order not to spoil the market. But that was the trend. And some central banks have gotten to the point where they have basically zero gold anymore. I think Canada has sold off all their gold. Russia's sold off all their gold. Uh, but the United States and countries in the Eurozone have pretty much hung on to their gold. And why don't they sell it? I think they think it would look bad. Um, in the US, we still have gold producers, gold miners, who lobby them not to drive down the price of gold by selling it. And the production of gold has become pretty decentralized. Um, the countries that have been buying gold in recent years, uh, pretty much China and India. It's not very widespread outside those two countries. And why they're doing it, I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to ask them. But it's been profitable for them. Um, I guess they... they want to have a more diversified uh, set of reserves, I guess. But 
why they came up with that, I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting if you look, so I was going to ask about like gold today still versus other assets that a bank or central bank could hold. Obviously we know that it's, you know, sovereign bonds is, is, is the main one, but, um, it's, a, it's about, I, I do this for the website, uh, working on some more comparing Bitcoin and base monies around the world. We won't get into that, but, uh, in ounces, it's about 1.1 billion ounces that central banks hold at the moment. It's probably going to be this year, like 1.2 billion ounces. So at $2,000 an ounce, you're at 2.2 trillion, $2.4 trillion equivalent in central banks all around the world. Uh, interestingly, that is about the previous all-time high, which was in 1965. 1965 was about that number. It was a big dip hmm. um, after Brenton Woods. And then, uh, and now it's back up to the previous all-time high. Basically. And at the same time, the public is holding even more than that. Yeah, yeah. There's much more that's outside of jewelry coins, now. That, bullion, ETFs. Yeah, much more, exactly. That's outside of just jewelry, much more private uh, coinage for sure. Um, but still, if you look at central banks, um, you know, base money was like a couple hundred billion dollars back then. Now base money is $30 trillion globally. Um, all the all the central banks around the world. My question would be, gold in ounce terms is about the same as it was in 1965. Um, I guess that portends, even with like, even with what we just talked about, like there's private investment, people are buying, they want to hedge against inflation. Um, it's just interesting to me that it hasn't changed in over 50 years. Uh, it's back to the all-time high. But what do you think will be then the safe haven asset for central banks and banks? Because I, I still don't really see that it is gold, regardless of the politics or what we may feel on the call. I don't, I don't see that it is gold. Okay. Um, I regard demonetized gold as a completely different topic from talking about the gold standard. Uh, and and trying to guess what the gold market is going to do is like trying to guess what the copper market is going to do. Yeah, that's a good point. It's really disconnected from monetary regimes nowadays, except insofar as central banks are big players in the uh, gold market the way they aren't in the copper market. So, yeah, I, I don't... Gold serves as a safe haven or a, you know, a tail risk asset that uh, people buy when they're uncertain about what's happening or when they're fearing inflation or something else. Uh, but so is Bitcoin now. Uh, and the value of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies uh, in circulation is getting closer to the value of monetary gold held by the public. Uh, the ratio used to be, I don't know, 20 to one. And now it's closer to two to one gold to cryptocurrencies. Um, so that seems to be the, the asset class that's on the rise uh, that people resort to to hedge against inflation and other tail risks uh, in financial markets. Dr. White, as my last question, I'd like to get your thoughts on the dollar reserve status. Is the dollar end game near? What are gonna what is gonna be the next <laughs> reserve uh, currency? Because e even though we don't have uh, a gold convertibility, we still have the dollar as 
the currency of the world. Pri everything is priced in dollars. So it is our mm -hmm. monetary unit. It is our unit of account. So what is going to be the next one? Is it will it will it end in this century? Well, before the dollar, it was the pound sterling, and that was based, of course, on its undoubted convertibility into gold at a fixed rate. Uh, and the dollar took over, but uh, as you're suggesting, it's it's not permanent. Uh, you know, the Roman Empire only lasted so long. <laughs> uh, the gold standard only lasted so long. It's hard to say. I mean. It, the dollar will hold hold on to its sort of premier status as the world's most commonly accepted medium of exchange and the world's pricing unit as long as it doesn't inflate too badly compared to the alternatives. So if the dollar breaks up or the dollar returns to double-digit inflation, the question is, uh, who doesn't? <laughs> so the the next biggest contender in terms of its established base of users would be the euro. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which the dollar goes to double-digit inflation and the euro doesn't also. So if all the fiat currencies in the world become unreliable, then what's the next alternative? Well, it's gold and it's cryptocurrency. So... Hard to say. Uh, I have argued in places that gold is in a slightly better position than cryptocurrency because the value held by the public is greater. The volatility of its purchasing power is lower. Um, but of course, governments are probably have more of a handle on suppressing the use of gold than they have on suppressing the use of cryptocurrency. However, they can drive cryptocurrency underground, which makes it hard for people to use. Not impossible, but you have to be pretty sophisticated to operate on peer-to-peer -peer exchanges rather than you know, centralized exchanges. Those are much easier to use. Um, so it's a good question. Uh, I observed the other day, somebody posted a news story on Twitter about the use of gold as a medium of exchange re-emerging in Venezuela, <laughs> in the gold mining regions of Venezuela, because the currency is hyperinflating, people are starting to use gold nuggets as a medium of exchange at grocery stores. So these alternatives can spontaneously emerge if the incumbent currency gets bad enough. So it, it it's, uh, I guess, a horse race between a return to a gold standard and uh a widespread retail use of Bitcoin. Uh, those would be the leading candidates if all the fiat currencies break down. Any over-under on when that return will be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's not in my lifetime because it means, you know, complete financial chaos if we return to double-digit or worse inflation uh, in the U.S. and Europe. Very good. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, the, the sad truth, I guess. But we, we have no guarantee that it won't happen. That's the sad part. Yeah, that's true. 
Matthew, thank you very much for making this uh, discussion possible. It's been fascinating. And Dr. White, I really appreciate your time and your experience. Uh, it's, it's been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, good questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. White. Appreciate it.